leading us in worship, as always, and so thankful for John Bryant, who can swing from the guitar to the drums in just a moment's notice. Uh, you know, not everybody can do things like that, so thankful for all of them and how talented they are, and Caleb carrying the uh, rhythm over there, and, and so we're so thankful for all those, and Steve on the bass, and I'm missing a couple today, but um, missing Kelly. She gave birth this past week, so she's out, and uh, so thankful that she had a safe delivery. So that's exciting news. We're excited to have all these babies coming to First Baptist, and that's a wonderful thing. Before we go any further, I just want us to take a moment, just pause, and ask the Lord to be with us this morning. Would you do that? Just ask the Lord to settle our hearts. Well, Lord, we just thank you for the worship that we've had. We thank you for the privilege of celebrating uh, baptism as a reminder of your death and burial and your resurrection and the fact that we are buried with you and raised to new life in Christ. And Lord, as we tackle a challenging passage of Scripture this morning, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would gently work through your word to reveal areas in our lives that are out of touch with you or area of our life that's not pleasing to you. Lord, as we search our own hearts this morning, we just pray that you would use your word to shine the light on our heart, find where we may be out of step with you. And so we just pray right now for these moments. We thank you for all that's taken place before, but we come to this moment realizing the gravity of your word. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in 3 John this morning. It's a very small book of the Bible. In fact, if you just flip all the way back almost to Revelation, it's just a, a few pages before Revelation. And so this morning, we're going to consider the danger of Diotrephes disease. Now, I'm not uh, thinking anybody particularly has this disease. I'm asking you to evaluate yourself to see if you do have this disease. Diotrephes disease. Now, you might not know what that is, but I'll tell you this, it's a lot more common than what people realize. And you may have diatrophies disease and may not even be aware of it. And so this morning, we're going to consider the symptoms of a very dangerous disease called diatrophies disease. You know, you know, symptoms are very important. We, we look at those symptoms to really diagnose if we have things, don't we? A doctor does that. They look at symptoms. And 25 years ago, there was a man named Je Jeff Foxworthy who gave symptoms of what it what it was to be a redneck. And so he gave a list of symptoms. If you have these, then you might be a redneck. Anybody remember Jeff Foxworthy? Some of you. And so these are some of the things that he said. He said this. Now, I'm not saying that you're a redneck if you have these. I'm just saying he said that these are symptoms of a redneck. For example, he said, if you ever cut your grass and you found a car, you might be a redneck. Or if you own a home that is mobile and five cars that are not, then you might be a redneck. If, you, if your grandmother has ammo on her Christmas list, <laughs> you might be a redneck. If you think a subdivision is part of a math problem, then you might be a redneck. This is my favorite. If you take a fishing pole to SeaWorld, <laughs> you might be a redneck. If you think a family reunion, a family reunion is a chance to meet girls, you might be a redneck. If you've ever made change in the offering plate, you might be a redneck. If you consider pork and beans to be gourmet food, <laughs> you might be a redneck. If you think rapture is what happens to you when you lift something too heavy, <laughs> you might be a redneck. If you request to be buried in your four-wheel drive pickup truck because it ain't never been in a hole it can't get out of, <laughs> you might be a redneck. 
Well, I don't know if those symptoms really define whether you're a redneck, but in John, uh, third John, he gives us some symptoms of a very dangerous disease, and uh, this is a very destructive disease for very many churches. And so in third John, it was a personal letter that he wrote to a fellow believer in a church that he really had an interest in. His name was Gaius. And so he wrote Gaius this little simple letter to warn him about this dangerous disease. And so 3 John is actually the, very, the shortest book in the Bible. It's the shortest book, but it has a powerful punch. You know, it's kind of like a, an email. Instead of a, a, a letter, it's an email. It's just brief. And so John just gives some very brief statements. He doesn't go into a lot of discussion. He just gives some very quick details about this particular disease. And so John said, I didn't include everything in my letter. In 3 John chapter 13, I mean verse 13, he said this. In John, 3 John 13, he said, I had many things to write to you, but I do not wish to write you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly that we may speak face to face. You know, that's how we ought to handle conflict, isn't it? Face to face. So many times we like to do it in a text message. Well, we ought to do it face to face. And so John said, I've got more to say, but I'm going to do that in person. I'm going to deal with this issue in person, but for right now, I just need to give you some warning signs. And so if you've got your Bible open or turned on to 3 John, let's look at the symptoms of diatrophies disease. 3 John, verse 9. I wrote to the church, but diatrophies, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he, which he does." Pratting against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Now, Diotrephes was a man, we don't know all the details about him, but, but uh, it was a very popular Greek name in his day. And it was a name that was usually identified with Greek aristocrats and nobility. So it's very likely that Diotrephes was an educated man. He may have been a wealthy man. Maybe he was a powerful man. Maybe he was used to having a lot of power and control. But just because you're educated and just because you're wealthy does not mean you have this disease. In fact, you can be very poor and uneducated and still have Diotrephes disease. But when you read about Diotrephes, you're going to discover that this man was a cancer to his church. And so what are the symptoms of this dangerous disease? I'm going to give you about four symptoms. Number one, you might have Diotrephes disease if you relish being in the spotlight. If you relish being in the spotlight. Verse 9 says that Diotrephes loved to have the preeminence among them. You know, to, to have preeminence means that you are first. You love being first. You want to be in the spotlight. You want to be in important positions. You want to be where everybody can see you. You want to have preeminence. And so Diotrephes wanted to be in a position of power and control. Now Diotrephes apparently was an influential leader in this particular church, but he loved throwing his weight around. And that's what he was doing. You know, there's some people, if they get a little bit of authority, if they get a little power, it goes to their head. You ever notice that? How many of you ever heard of a, a study? It was called the Stanford Prison Experiment in 1971 at Stanford University. And what these researchers did is they put an ad in the paper and they said, we needed some young men who will be willing to participate in a two-week study. And, um, and we'll pay you $15 a day, but you have to stay here, you know, 24-7. 
And so 70 people signed up, and they selected 24 out of the 70 to participate in this study. And they said, okay, we're going to make half of those 24 to be prisoners and half of them to be um, uh, uh, guards. And so the, the way they decided which one would be which is they just took a coin toss and they flipped it. And that's how they determined who were going to be prisoners and who were going to be guards. Would you like that to be how you were decided whether you're going to be a prisoner? By coin toss. But that's how they did it. And so they, they made their prison look very real. They put up doors that had bars on it. They put shackles on the prisoners. They took their clothes, their street clothes, and gave them like prison garments with a number on it. And that's the only way they would refer to them is by their number. And so they gave the guards the power to make the rules for the prison and to enforce the rules. They had the responsibility of maintaining order. So this was a two-week study, but they had to cancel it within six days. Because within six days, a third of the guards began to abuse their prisoners. So much that they had to stop it because they were in jeopardy. So power and authority can go to some people's heads. And so for some reason, Diotrephes had become a leader in this church. And I don't know if he was a deacon. I don't know if he was a pastor. I don't know whatever position he had. But he had some influence in this church. And apparently he had gone to his head. He wanted to be the top dog. He wanted to be preeminent. He wanted to be first at the buffet line. He wanted those jobs that gained a lot of recognition. And when I started thinking about Diotrephes disease, you know what it's at the very heart of Diotrephes disease? It's selfishness. It's all about meism. It's about me. I want to be elevated. I want to be idolized. I want to be praised. If you would go to Barnes and Noble, and you can do this later, if you don't go now, but go to Barnes and Noble over in Florence, or you go to look online at Barnes and Noble, or go to Amazon and look up how many books you find about self. You'll find a lot of books. I looked it up. There were books about self-help, self-care, self-esteem, self-compassion. A lot of us probably need that sometimes. How about this one? The sovereign self. Self-love. Self-determination. Your infinite self. It's all about self. It's all about me. It's about who I am. You know, one of the tactics of marketing, and I majored in marketing, but you know, one of the tactics in marketing is to get a person, if you want to make a sale, you want to get them talking about themselves. themselves. If you can get a person talking about themselves, then uh, they'll think you're the greatest salesman on earth. And so that's a tactic. You know, you think about the posts that are put on Facebook and social media. How many times is it a person who's trying to make other people think how wonderful they are? Because it's all about who? Self. Do you know the main problem in marriages is self? Is meism? It's all about me. I want my needs met. I don't want to serve my husband. I don't want to serve my wife. I want, I want to be served. It's all about me. And it's also about selfishness. You know, I heard about a husband and wife who were riding in their car one day and, and they were having a little argument. And they were riding in the country and they were having this dispute. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm sure nobody in here ever has a heated discussion with their husband or their wife. But uh, he was at this couple, they were having an argument and it got kind of tense and kind of got heated and they were uh, going at each other for a little while. Well, after a while, they kind of cooled down and they, they went silent for a moment. Now, just because it's silent doesn't mean it's over. I mean, they might have been quiet on the outside, but they were fuming on the inside. You're, you know what I'm talking about? And so they were sitting there riding there. It was very quiet. And they're looking at this through the country. And all of a sudden, they ride by a farm and it has pigs on the hillside. And the wife looks over at her husband. And she said, relatives of yours? <laughs> the husband didn't miss a beat. He said, yep, in-laws. <laughs> you know, if we're not careful, 
we can have a meism attitude. And the Apostle John indicated that the love of the spotlight is a symptom of a very serious disease. You know, if the Apostle Paul, I started thinking, if the Apostle Paul were to write a, a book about self, what would he write about self? Well, he would say, it's not about you. It's about Christ. In Colossians 1, verse 18, this is what Paul says. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Jesus is to be preeminent in your life. Jesus is to be preeminent in my life. Jesus is to be preeminent in the life of First Baptist Church. If you want to avoid Diotrephes disease, Christ has to be preeminent. He has to have first place in your life. Amen? If First Baptist is going to be a great church for Christ, he has to be preeminent. He has to be first. Then I started thinking, well, if Jesus was going to write a book about self, what would he say? He would say how to get over yourself. How to get over yourself. In Mark chapter 9, verse 33, it describes how the disciples one day were discussing who was going to be the greatest. Can you imagine the disciples talking about who's going to be the greatest? I mean, they've been with Jesus three years, and they're still talking about who's going to be number one. Who's the greatest? I can only imagine what that discussion would have gone like. Andrew would have looked at Peter. Hey, I am the greatest. I was chosen before you. I am first. I am the greatest. Peter said, oh, no, no, no. I am the greatest. I've got greater faith than anybody else. I'm the only one who had enough faith to get out of the boat. I'm the greatest. And then Judas would look over at him and say, hey, boys, listen. I am the greatest. I am the treasure. I control the money. I'm the greatest. Matthew, who was the tax collector, said, no, no, no. I am the greatest. I have all the money. <laughs> I've got more money than any of you. I am the greatest. And you know, I started thinking about how they all wanted preeminence. They wanted the spotlight. You know, a church gets in trouble when people start thinking it's about them, doesn't it? And I think about Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And this is what it says. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But Christ made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. You know, we are all about building ourselves up, aren't we? We're all about being great, aren't we? We're all about making a reputation for ourselves. And while we are trying to build a reputation, Jesus was making himself of no reputation. Jesus would say, I can tell you how to do it, boys. Get over yourselves. Jesus was the greatest. And he was also the greatest servant. You know, people lots of times like to talk about how they came from nothing and they made something out of themselves. Jesus came from everything and made nothing out of himself. Jesus told his disciples how to get over themselves. In Mark chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus said this. It says this. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, this is the one who's preeminent. This is the one who created the universe. This is the king of kings who became poor for us. He says this, hey, guys, I want to tell you something that will transform your life. I want to tell you something that will change your life. You know, don't be like all the, the worldly people. They want to flaunt their power. They want to flaunt their authority. He said, don't be like them. 
He said they love to, to exalt themselves. But if you really want to be great, be a servant. If you really want to be great, be least. Be a, be a leader who serves. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, it says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but the interest of others. If you really want to avoid Diotrephes disease, you know what you need? You need a little bit of joy. You need some joy. Do you know what joy is? It's Jesus first. Preeminent. That's joy. You know what joy is? It's other second. That's joy. You know what joy is? It's you last. Jesus first, other second, you last. That's joy. Let me ask you this morning, do you have joy? Do you have joy? Let me give you the second symptom. You might have diatrophies disease if you relish the spotlight, but you might also have diatrophies disease if you rebel against authority. In verse 9, it says that diatrophies prevented John, the Apostle John, from going to the church. He says he does not receive us. Now, diatrophies did not prevent John from coming to the church because he was teaching some kind of heresy. It wasn't a doctrinal problem. It wasn't a theological problem. It was an egotistical problem. Let me just make this statement up front. We wouldn't want just anybody to stand behind this pulpit and preach. We, we wouldn't want somebody to preach something that's not doctrinally sound. In 2 John 1.10, John said this, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, the gospel of truth, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. Now, we wouldn't just let anybody preach from our pulpit. We want somebody to preach uh, uh, biblically sound messages from this pulpit. Wouldn't you agree? Can you say amen to that? I hope that's your heartbeat. You know, I think about there are fewer and fewer big-name preachers who I'd feel comfortable preaching because less and less of them are preaching the truth of the gospel. And Diotrephes didn't reject the Apostle John on a doctrinal issue it was an egotistical issue. Diotrephes wouldn't even listen to John. I mean, listen to who John was. John was a disciple of Christ. He, he walked with Jesus for three years. John the Baptist was there at the crucifixion of Jesus. He watched him being crucified. And while Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looked at John and said, John, take care of my mother. Jesus trusted John with his mother. I certainly believe he would trust him with his church. John witnessed the death of Christ. He witnessed the resurrection of Christ. Firsthand. Firsthand witness. And John the Baptist, I mean, John the Apostle was there uh, on the day of Pentecost. Whenever the Holy Spirit filled them, he was there. John the Baptist was uh, put in prison and beaten for preaching the gospel. In fact, the Bible says, well, not the Bible, but the history says that he was boiled in oil at the hands of Emperor Domitian and he was exiled on the island of Patmos. This is the same John that was refused by Diotrephes. Now listen, John, the Apostle John, had authority in the church because he was an apostle. He wasn't an, uh, an authority in the church because he was better than anybody else. It was because Jesus himself had put him in that position, in a position of authority. 
And it was this John that Diotrephes rebelled against. So in 3 John, verse 9, John said this, I wrote a letter to the church, but Diotrephes, he intercepted it. He wouldn't let the church read it. He cut off communication. So John was not some kind of fly-by-night preacher. He was an apostle of Christ. And he was being refused. He was being rebelled against by Diotrephes. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says this, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Do you know that one day I'll have to give an account for how I led First Baptist Church? Do you know that one day John will have to give an account for how he's led the worship ministry at First Baptist Church? One day, J.B. will have to give an account for how he's led the student ministry here at First Baptist Church. Did you know if you're a connect group leader, you're going to have to give an account for how you led your connect group. If you're a children's leader, maybe a nursery worker, you're going to have to give an account for what you did with those little souls. We'll have to give an account. Some people ask me sometimes why it took me so long to to decide if I was going to accept this position at First Baptist. You know, it took some time, a lot of prayer. Well, I'll tell you why. Because I understand the gravity of the situation. I understand the gravity of the position. And it's not something that I take lightly. And I'll just say this. I hope, and I don't know how long I'll be in this position, as long as the Lord says for me to be here. Or you say, (laughs) I can be here. But whatever the case, I don't think you'd want a pastor who doesn't take take it seriously, this position. And he's not sober-minded about it. It's a very serious responsibility. And because of the seriousness of being in leadership, the writer of Hebrews urged the church to allow leaders to lead with joy and not grief. Otherwise, it would be unprofitable for who? The pastor? No. The associate pastors? No. The connect group leaders? No. It would be unprofitable for who? For you. Diotrephes was rebelling against the very one who wanted to help him. But I think really down deep in Diotrephes' heart, he had some insecurities. He was a little bit afraid that somebody might come along who maybe could be a better leader than he was, or maybe a better singer, a better musician, or a better preacher, or a better teacher. And so he's like, oh, I want to guard my territory. I want to guard my turf. And sometimes Randy Carlson fills in when I'm gone. And... um, Sometimes somebody will say, you know what? You better not be gone too long. He did a wonderful job. (laughs) Well, you know, he does a wonderful job. You know, one thing I'll tell you about him, I don't ever have to worry about what he's going to preach. I know he's going to preach the truth. And so I'm not intimidated by that. I'm excited about that, that we've got somebody like him who can preach at a moment's notice and be trustworthy. A few weeks ago, uh, we had Ken Hux here and uh, some of you told me how much you really enjoyed his preaching. And somebody was talking about it. So I just so enjoyed his preaching. And they went on and on. So, oh, but now I enjoy your preaching too. <laughs> Listen, I am not offended by that. I'm encouraged by that. I know there are better preachers. You know, when I, when I think about somebody I want to ask to come, I really look for three things. Number one, that they're true to the Word. Number two, that they're filled by the Spirit. And number three, that they can preach. You know, I want you to be encouraged. I don't want to ask somebody to come and preach as poorly as I do. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be built up. 
That's not something bad. That's something good. But Diotrephes rebelled against John's authority because maybe he was feeling a little inferior and he was trying to guard his territory. Some of you say, well, you know, I don't, I don't rebel against authority. I don't rebel against leadership. Do you know how people rebel? People rebel in some subtle ways. One way they rebel is by becoming uncooperative. They say, well, if I can't do it my way, I'm just, I'm just not going to participate. I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to just take my toys and go home. And some people rebel against the church by saying, you know, I'm just not going to do what they're doing. I'm just going to go do my own thing over here and start a new thing. And so you begin to disconnect to show your disapproval. And so, and so instead of being cooperative, you become a, a competitor. And so that's passive rebellion. And then I think of another way that people rebel. They refuse to communicate uh, with people who hold positions. Diotrephes refused to listen to the Apostle John. He refused to speak to the Apostle John, just refused to talk to him at all. He cut off communication. Another way we rebel against authority is by becoming unteachable. Diotrephes was unteachable. He wasn't willing to be under anybody else's authority. If he couldn't do it his way, he wasn't going to do it anybody's way. He was unteachable. You know, I was talking to somebody who was, who was an employee at a multi-billion dollar company. Now, I didn't say million. I said billion. And this is what he told me. He said, when we look for employees... He said, now, we, we do look for skills, but we're not so interested in their skills and their abilities as we are their teachability. We would rather somebody be teachable than to be skilled because we can teach them what they need to know if they're teachable. But if they're not teachable, that's someone we don't need. Let me give you some verses about being teachable. Proverbs 12.1 says this, Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. But he who hates correction is what? Stupid. I didn't say that. That's not my word. I read it right out of the Bible. How about Proverbs 29.1? He who is often rebuked or corrected and hardened his neck, hardens his neck, will be suddenly destroyed, and that without remedy. Do you know what that means? There is no cure without remedy. That's what happens when you become unteachable. Let me ask you this morning, are you teachable? Are you willing to be under someone else's leadership? Are you rebelling against authority? And let me just say, we've got lots of parents here, and we've got some young parents here. Let me just warn you this way. Be careful how you respond to authority, because your children will learn from you. Let me give you a third symptom. You might have diatrophies disease if you ridicule others. Verse 10 says that Diotrephes was pratting against us with malicious words. Now, not only did Diotrephes rebel against John, but he ridiculed him. He slandered him. He started a smear campaign. He started a council culture campaign against the Apostle John. He wanted to counsel John's influence in the church. And it's one thing for Diotrephes to say, well, you know, I'm just not going to follow him. That's one thing. It's another thing for him to say, well, I'm just not going to listen to him. I'm just not going to accept him. But it's a whole nother thing when he begins to say, I don't want anybody else to follow him either. And he didn't want anybody else to trust the Apostle John or to follow the Apostle John. So he launched this nasty campaign against the man of God. Do you know that that word pratting is a very interesting word? Very interesting word. It means bubble, like air bubble. Uh, let, let me give you an example. How many of you, when you were young, remember getting some, some dish soap and a little plastic wand with a circle on the end? You remember that? And you'd put it in there, and you could make a lot of bubbles with a little bit of soap. And you could just blow bubbles. Do you know what an air bubble is? It's just a lot of air with no substance. Do you know what slander is? 
Slander is a lot of air with no substance. That's what it is. It's like an air bubble. And that's what uh, John said that Diotrephes was doing to him. He was slandering him in this way, producing a lot of air bubbles. Have you ever tried to eat an air bubble? It's hard to do, isn't it? But you know what? When it comes to slander, we are really, a lot of times, if we're not careful, we will, we will be eager to absorb them. Did you know that the word devil means slander? I mean, when you're slandering someone, you're acting like the devil. His name means slander. That's what he does. He stands, the Bible says he stands before the throne of God and accuses the saints of God day and night. That's Revelation 12.10. You can look it up later. A man by the name of A.B. Simpson was a preacher and a missionary. He was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance. And he said this, and I quote, I would rather play with forked lightning or take in my hand live wires with their fiery current than to speak a reckless word against any servant of Christ or idly repeat the slanderous darts which thousands of Christians are hurling at on others to the hurt of their own souls and bodies. Now that's a powerful quote. We need to be careful of the words that we speak because there's power in the tongue. Proverbs 18, 21, Solomon said this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Does that frighten you? Solomon said that the tongue has power, the power of death and the power of life. And there are so many people who destroy others with their tongues. They go around spreading lies and destroying their character. You know, the media are absolute experts at doing this. You know what the media will do? They'll, they, they may have a political opponent or somebody that they disagree with, and, and they'll find out some kind of dirt on that person, and they haven't even found out the facts, but they go ahead and publish it. And they get it out there, and then when they find out the facts were not right, and that this person was not guilty of the things that they said, then they'll put a little retraction, and nobody ever reads it. The damage is already done, because you can't take it back. I, I read about a, a, this story this past week. I read a story of a, a wonderful Christian man who lived for Jesus. And one day, somebody started a smear campaign against him and began to make all these accusations about him. He was an older man, a respected man. And when that happened, it just broke his heart. And the next thing you know, he found himself on his deathbed, depressed, brokenhearted. Well, the man who launched that campaign against him, the Holy Spirit began working on his heart and he convicted him and the man repented for what he did and he asked God to forgive him, but he realized, I think I need to go back to that man and, and seek his forgiveness for what I've done to him. So he went to the man's house and the man's laying there on his deathbed. He said, you know, I need to talk to you. He said, I started this campaign. The Holy Spirit of God has convicted me and I want to come clean. I just want to ask your forgiveness. And that saint, saint of a man said, you're already forgiven. You're forgiven already. But I do have one thing I would like for you to do for me, if you would. Would you take the pillow that's under my head, I want you to go get a pair of scissors, and I want you to cut that pillow, and I want you to go to my window, and I want you to dump all those feathers out, out into the wind, and let it just blow them away. The man didn't understand why he wanted him to do that, but he did. He went and got scissors, cut the pillow, dumped all those feathers out into the wind, and then the man said, now, would you do me another favor? Would you go back and get them all back? And the man weeping said, you know, I can't get them back. He said, no, and neither can you gather again all the words that you sent out about me. You know, when you slander someone, you can never undo the harm. Jesus made a very potent statement in Matthew 12, 36. He said, but I say that for every idle word that men speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Now, I don't know about you, but I've said a lot of idle words. I don't like that thought. 
Do you know why your speech is so critical? Because our speech sets the tone in your home and in the church. Your speech sets the tone in your home and in the church. If you go home and you're very critical of others, and that's the atmosphere of your home, then it'll set the tone for your home. If, if you come to church and you're very critical of others, it will set the tone for the church. Our speech sets the tone. In James 3.8, James said this, and un, the tongue is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. He said, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. You can't worship God in one moment and then slander your brother in the next. I read about a little girl who crawled up into her daddy's lap one day, and she wrapped her little arms around her daddy's neck, and she was hugging him and loving him, and and uh, then she saw her brother. While she's hugging him, she sees her little brother behind him. And they'd already been having a fight. And uh, they were already kind of having a grudge with one another. So she just looked at him while she's holding her daddy's neck. She just stuck her tongue out at him. And so she did that, and the mother saw it. And she went to, that little, he, she went to her daughter, and she got her up. She said, don't you be hugging your daddy's neck while you are sticking your tongue out at his son. You know, isn't that what we do? We try to hug our father's neck while we're sticking our tongue out at his son. You can't hug the neck of God and slander each other at the same time. It's not acceptable. But do you know how to set a good atmosphere? Do you know how to set a good atmosphere in your home? Do you know how to set a good atmosphere in the church? Ephesians 4.29, it says this. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Let no rotten, dirty word come out of your mouth except for what is good for edification, that it may impart grace to the ears. Instead of tearing down, he says start building up. Build up. Edify. That's what that word means. It means to edify. Now I want to give you three quick principles about how you should handle uh, slander and gossip. Before you share a story, ask yourself three questions. Number one, is this something you would say if the individual you were talking about was present? Is this something you would say if the person you're talking about was present? Number two, have you talked to them about it first and verified that it is indeed true and that it's public knowledge? Number three, is what you're about to share going to benefit the people that you're talking to and talking about? It's lofty, isn't it? I'm going to give you one last symptom, very briefly. You might have Diotrephes disease if you reject outsiders. Verse 10 says that he himself, Diotrephes, does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Now back in this day, itinerant preachers would go from city to city and they would preach from church to church and that's how they did things. And when they would come to your town or our town, they wouldn't be able to to uh, you know, go look on Priceline.com and get a hotel. They wouldn't be able to stay in Marriott or Hampton Inn. They would have to stay in somebody's house. Somebody would have to show them hospitality. That's how it worked. Somebody had to be hospitable to them. You know, I'm thankful for First Baptist Church. We have a lot of people with hospitality. We have a lot of people in this church who know how to show hospitality. It's evident. I mean, when Ken was here, he was treated like a king. I mean, he ate, he ate so good while he was here. He ate it. Uh, Art and Elizabeth one day and Ellen and Thomas is another day. Vicki similarly cooked for him one day and served him at my house. And then, uh, on top of all that, Shelby Coward made him two blueberry cakes. Not one, but two. How many of you have ever had one of Shelby Coward's cakes or pies? I mean, I, I mean, almost everybody at some point has had a cake or a pie that Shelby Coward's made. That's been her heartbeat. That's hospitality. You know what hospitality is? Hospitality is love in action. 
And that's what it is. But Diotrephes refused to welcome outsiders. He refused to welcome people who were on the outside. Not only did he want to refuse them, he didn't want anybody else to receive them. You know, the greatest danger of contracting Diotrephes disease is that you become inward focused and you start saying, I don't want to welcome anybody else. You stop reaching out. And if we're not careful, we can have an us for no more mentality. Because maybe we just want to guard, we want to protect. We have an us for no more. I don't want anybody else in my group. I don't want anybody else to mess it up. You know, when somebody comes to First Baptist, we need to be reaching out to them. We need to build a bridge to them. We need to build relationships with them. You know, when people come to First Baptist, they don't know how to get to the bathroom. Most members probably don't even know how to get to the bathroom. But when somebody asks you where the bathroom is, you know what that is? That's an opportunity for you to connect. Instead of saying, hey, the bathroom's down that hall, take a right, and then they left, you just say, can I show you where the bathroom's located? Let's be welcoming. Hospitable. Help people build a bridge. But if we're not careful, we can have a us for no more mentality. Some connect groups do that. Some small groups do that. Some other groups, you know, sometimes you'll get this attitude, I just want to exclude other people. I don't want to bring other people in. I just want to keep my connect group just like it is, just us four. And sometimes we do small groups and we put sign-up sheets back out here. Some of you remember. And some of you agree to host and we put your sign-up sheet back there and so people can just sign up when they're ready to sign up for your small group. Well, inevitably, we'll put a sign-up sheet back there and somebody will be hosting and they'll go check their sheet about every you know, two, a few days and there's nobody on it and nobody signs up. And they'll say, well, you know, nobody signed up for my small group. I said, well, you know, you don't really need to wait for somebody to sign up. You need to be inviting people to come to your group. If, if my name's out there, I'm not going to wait for you to sign up. I'm going to start asking somebody to come because I want somebody to be there. If you want somebody to attend your connect group, who are you asking? If you want somebody to attend your small group, who are you asking? You need to be inviting and reaching out to people. Now, you might ask 20 people and only get one, but I'll tell you, that starts somewhere. I'll start, start with one. We need to be outreaching, welcoming. I don't know about you, but I want everybody to come to First Baptist. I'm not kidding. I don't care where I go. I'm always telling people, you'd love it here at First Baptist. This is the church for you. And I hope when they get here, you make me look good. Because I told them that you look good. I'm just saying. I put a lot of confidence in you. When we have visitors, I want them to know they are welcome here at First Baptist. And we ought to have welcoming arms. I want to ask you a few diagnostic questions as we kind of wrap up this morning. How do you respond when new people come? Do you connect with them? Do you reach out to them? Do you invite them to your connect group? Really, a visitor should never come and not have somebody invite them to a connect group. How do you respond? Are you inviting? Are you reaching out? How about this? Do you you want to be first? Do you submit to leadership? Do you cooperate with leaders? Do you criticize others? Do the words that you speak build up or tear down? How do you answer those questions? I'll just tell you, I asked myself these questions before I got here. You know, I'm not really all excited about the things that sometimes those things reveal. And I said, you know, Lord, I got a lot more diatrophies in me that I want. How about you? There's some diatrophies. I don't want those symptoms. I don't want to displease him. So as we come to our invitation time, I'm going to ask you, how would you respond to what you've just read about, the symptoms of diatrophies disease? 
Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, as we look at your word, sometimes it's very confrontational. Sometimes it's very pointed. And Lord, I love it when I read your word and it's so encouraging and it just always uplifts me. But Lord, there are times I read your word and it's confronting me right where I'm at. And Lord, I don't know. Maybe I'm only one that has some of these symptoms. Maybe other people do. But Lord, as we come to this invitation time, if, if there are symptoms of this disease in our hearts, would you, would you show it? Would you reveal it? Would you let it be known to us? Lord, we want to be different. And if we do, we need to confess our sin, the Word says. Help us to be very specific about it. It's so easy for us to gloss over things. Help us to, to recognize exactly how we've demonstrated these symptoms and come to you with it, asking you to heal us and change us. Lord, we do want the mind of Christ to be in us, but we need you to help us to be transformed. And so right now, I just pray for this invitation time. Lord, that you'd put it on our hearts how to respond. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you stand, I just want to invite you. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you want to join this church. I'd love for you to come. We'd love to have you.